This here is Swampside Chats, the podcast where some carpetbagging communists and scalawag socialists, bless their hearts, flap their yappers about goings-on, history, political economy, and some other highfalutin' happy horseshit. This time, we're fixing to dive right back into the old enemy camp with C. Derek Varn. Now our comrade Derek, a native son if you didn't know, smuggles some Yankees over yonder across the Mason-Dixon, where we sip on some sweet tea and take a gander at the 1854 reactionary tract, Sociology for the Sale, or the Failure of Free Society. Come marvel with us at what just might be the nuttiest enemy camp you ever did see. A Dixocrat who defends slavery is a form of socialism. Let's just say this fits you, fella. Well, the elevator don't go all the way to the top if you catch my drift, darling. In offense to lost causes, we're in the enemy camp with, say, Derek Vaughn. Oh, sorry, everyone. I was just uh, having a usual daydream I have that I was a happy and contented slave. That I'd have to worry about finding a place to live or what I was going to do the next day or where I was going to get food. Like, just living that happy lifestyle that, uh, that we learned about from the book this week. Yeah, so uh, when Kansas and Neil Young went to war in the 1830s, um, this was what it was about. You mean Alabama and Neil Young? Neil Young wrote Southern Man to pick a fight with Alabama because uh, Sweet Home Alabama was written in. I think of myself as cultured about these things, but I'm really not. I don't know to think about these rock and roll wars. All I know is Antero's like, got is... the stars and bars pretty pretty prominent. That's all I can really say. I mean, it's like the firefly of metal bands. I think we can all agree here that like Waffle House is pretty dope. And you know. I don't know. I grew up on Waffle House. so Hi, y'all. This is my native accent. I, I once walked into a Waffle House and saw somebody in the corner uh, making chainmail armor. So, great restaurant. That might have been me in 1995. <laughs> <laughs> the year I was born, I walked into a Waffle House. Oh, God damn, I'm old. Right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Feels bad. Welcome back to the enemy camp, comrades. We're talking about uh, sociology for the South. Yeah? Yes. I think you said this is the first book in like the English language to feature sociology in the title, or it's the first American book. No, it's the first book in the English language to use sociology in the title, not just the American book. It was the first one. It came out in 1854. Good old Fitzhugh. If the Confederacy had stuck around a little bit. Right. And if there weren't these kind of political incentives on the right towards libertarianism and away from kind of socialist rightism or whatever, this guy would be a huge thinker in the reactionary canon. He's quite articulate. Yeah. I mean, maybe I could just like sum up like what this is, at least what I read of it. I read up the first 50 pages. You've often seen, probably seen like online like memes like socialism, you mean like slavery, right? Well, this guy basically argues that that's actually what's good about socialism. <laughs> like, he's he's pro-slavery, and he basically thinks what's good about socialism is the elements that resemble slavery to him. The socialism thing is penable, but it's not really uncommon for Southern intellectuals to have postured as anti-capitalist. And he's really articulating the anti-capitalist right. case for the South as a reaction project against 
capitalist modernity. He argues that Fortier, Owens, and Saint-Simon are too congenial to industrialization and that the the agrarian form of socialism is dependent on protecting the weak, but protecting the weak requires efficient control, and the only way to have both protection and efficient control is enslavement. He also goes so far even to advocate that like you should enslave white people in an article he wrote outside of this book. He said that, like, well, you know, Yankees, if you caught them young, could be trained to be good slaves. So he was intersectional. Well, there's a part of this where he basically refers to, you know, like practices in China where people would basically sell themselves into slavery when they completely bottomed out because it was preferable to being just sort of abandoned and destitute or, or a beggar or something like that. And that seems to be, like, the crux of his argument is that, like, the direct personal domination of, like, slavery is maybe preferable to the impersonal domination or abandonment of the capitalist marketplace. Yeah. This is a very complex argument about what free labor, uh, free as in wage labor, it does to society with capitalism and, you know, the, the dangers of the freedoms in capitalism as far as modal production goes. Yeah, he's actually very interesting in that he sounds a lot like a lot of the Reconstruction apologists for slavery, but what makes him different is he argues that free trade is a war of all against all, um, and it pits the poor against the rich and the poor against each other, and the only way to really do that is to protect the poor by enslaving them and to make the weak and the strong in dependency on one another. So there's no incentive to immiserate the poor any further because you need them to do the slave labor. That is his argument. Right. When there's a point, too, where he talks about, like, like your, your personal affection for your dog. Like, why do you love your dog? Because it's yours, you know? And so it's like, if you're a slave, like, if you get old, they take care of you because, like, it's your, you're part of the family. It's the old, uh, we took care of our slaves kind of argument. It's a very sentimentalized view of the institution, obviously. I just found the preface alone so fascinating, right? Because it centers on introducing this titular term sociology, and which, as we were saying, hadn't been popularized in English yet, especially not in the South. And he makes an argument about why it's even less popularized in the South, because he clearly conceptualizes the North and the South as having competing visions for the mode of production that was in development in the United States, right? And so he argues that sociology emerges out of free society, his term for capitalist civil society, because of its revolutionary tumult and its social contradiction, whereas the South and kind of past tributary or kinship-based modes of production are cohesive enough that you don't have that separation to even be sociological, right? And so he has an inverted point here, actually, right? You know, so maybe capitalism isn't preferable in all respects to past mode of productions, but it's the freest mode of production the world has seen in that it's fundamentally able to be understood as transformable, right? Wage labor, atomized labor, it's disembedded from production enough for us to begin making these subjective comparisons of capitalism to past and possible productive relations. And so the ability to say capitalism is less free in some respect or another compared to past historical formations is itself dependent on the level of freedom it does have. And that's the sort of freedom and internal contradiction that makes capitalism very unappealing to certain reactionaries. You know, they resent it for, as Marx says, producing its own gravediggers. They become anti-capitalist so as to be completely 
anti-communist. Well, he doesn't really believe in freedom. I think he either, at best, he seems to think it's like just a meaningless abstraction, or at worst, he just associates it with like criminality and sort of lowest aspects of like human nature. There are two assumptions that I noticed reading the first 50 pages. One is his definition of freedom is largely dependent on Aristotle, who he doesn't cite. But freedom can be a degenerative force because it allows different groups to play against their nature. And he does see the weak as servile when he sees, you know, blacks as that. But he also sees large groups of rights as that, too. He talks about the Irish a whole lot in this regard. And then he also sees destructive capacity of capitalism as kind of a return to a state of nature. So there's a Hobbesian proviso here that capitalism is free and that freedom allows a war of all against all that's kind of new. Yeah, he actually says some things about political economy that are really fascinating. The way he talks about political economy is actually just the way Marx talks about political economy in a lot of ways, right? Because he identifies political economy as this self-rationalizing product of emerging bourgeois life. I think, like, Marx had more respect. He basically built upon the theoretical edifice of, like, you know, political economy, even if there was a sort of critique aspect in his intellectual project. Yeah. The other thing that we have to acknowledge about him and Marx that should make us slightly uncomfortable is that his frame of reference is actually identical to Marx because he also is highly referencing in the in the preface and in the first chapter uh, Fortier, Saint-Simon, and Owens as the preliminary thinkers, and he sees their utopian vision. His problem with them is that it's, well, he wouldn't use this word, but it, basically this too industrial and technocratic and doesn't have the proper respect for human dignity. Right. He sees centralization right. as an issue. You know, that's different than Marx's critique, but it is pulling from the same tradition and the other thing, it eerily reminded me of Adorno's Dialectic of Enlightenment, like, really a lot, actually. Yeah, I got the same feelings when he was talking about sociology, where Adorno spends a lot of his sort of, I don't know, later career arguing against sociology as such um, because of the, what the discipline becomes. This is somebody picking up on sociology, which for him is just associated with socialism, dead up. Like, way before anybody else, <laughs> like in the English language at least. And that kind of stands to reason. I don't know that much about his background. Probably should have looked into it. Um, but there were, you know, like waves of Germans coming from the failed, you know, 1848 revolutions. And they would have brought a lot of those ideas at least into American circles at that time. It's just quite interesting. Like, when we say he's identifying some of the same stuff as Marx, it's funny because Marx is going, wow, this system has all these contradictions that would allow it to be transformed in an emancipatory way. And this guy's going, oh, wow, this, this system has all these contradictions that could allow it to be transformed in an emancipatory way. <laughs> you know, like, they're, they're saying similar things, but, but one is nervous about it <laughs> and one is excited. I want to push back on that. There's no higher form of freedom here. Freedom is destitution. That's all it is. Socialists should yeah. stop pretending that there's a higher form of freedom. All you got is abandonment or some form of patriarchal slavery, and that's your choice. Yeah, let me bring in some context here because this is actually from page 48 of the book, so it's in the part that we read, and I'll talk a little about some stuff he said elsewhere. 
Um, he says that socialism proposes to do away with free competition, to afford protection and support at all times to the laboring classes, to bring about at least as a qualified community of property, and to associate labor. All these purposes slavery fully and perfectly already attains. Socialism is already slavery and service to the master. Our only quarrel with socialism is that it does not honestly admit that it owes its recent survival to the failure of universal liberty and is thus seeking to bring about slavery again in some form. And then in another book called Cannibal's All, which he was picking up on um, Thomas Carlyle, which was his major influence, his major reactionary influence anyway, um, it is the duty of society to protect the weak, but the protection cannot be efficient without the proper power of control. Therefore, it is the duty of society to enslave the weak as efficiency demand. Listen, of course he's not actually saying that there is an emancipatory possibility out of capitalism. But he still says in the, in the preface and elsewhere that it's the revolutionary tumult that is a problem. And so my point is that he's seeing – the capitalism's ability to be transformed, even his identification of sociology as a discipline that could only have arisen out of capitalism, is his saying that free labor allows you to be disembedded from the mode of production in a certain way that allows a viewing from the outside and a thinking about transformation that, you know, past systems of production had this cohesiveness to them. And so... He discusses political economy as a, as a system of morals promoting selfishness on page 20, and his argument, though, makes this conflation that I think many on the left can sometimes make as well, which is basically alienated individual labor is postulated as alienated because it is individual. So he's moralizing back, you know, don't be selfish, he says, obey your collective responsibilities to civilization, whereas Marx, on the other hand, said that communists don't preach to people, you know, universally don't be egoists you know there's there's a time for the individual interest and the social interest and then our task is to make these things no longer in conflict but here he sees this individual interest that capitalism fosters as fundamentally in a way that transcends capitalism even as dangerous to the collective interest yeah um the thinker that he reminds me of that i know better is uh who was like beating off to august babel he wrote The Decline of Civilization. Spengler. It was Oswald Spengler. Oh, Spengler, yeah. yeah. Yep. He reminds me of Spengler in that he actually, like, he, he his issue with socialism is that it pretends a liberality that he doesn't like, but he basically agrees with the critique of capitalism. This goes further, and, like, why I said he reminds me of the Frankfurt School is, like, he, he actually has a problem not just with capitalism but with the entire Enlightenment and thinks that we need to go back to an Aristotelian conception of man. Well, you know what? And this relates to the industrialism stuff that he's talking about, too. I mean, there's foreshadowing of primitivism and eco-fascism and, and the like in this when he's talking about soil depletion. You know, that, that stuff is, is, is totally there. There's foreshadowing even of future right-wing appeals to anti-imperialism and anti-colonialism, where he's talking about how trade between nations always disadvantages the weaker nation. You know, he, he makes that kind of line of, you know, in capitalism, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, even between right. nations. And he notes that trade between the U.S. and natives, for example, advantages the U.S. innately. Yeah, and he talks about that with the U.K. and Ireland, too. This is something the Nazis polled. Yeah. You know? Well, yeah. this is arguing against Ricardo, the theory of comparative advantage. But what's interesting about this, though, is say, how many leftists basically accept most of these premises now? 
that's what makes this text terrifying. You know, it's been a while since an enemy camp really threw me for a loop, and I have to say, like, this isn't an especially, like, spelled-out argument, but the, the general gist of it... There's, like, it's messed up from a couple angles, right? You know, if you're just anti-wage labor, maybe anything but wage labor would be better, which gives you a, a view of the Civil War you might not want to have, you know? And and then there's also, like, is there a higher form of freedom really available? Or is it, like, you know, accelerationists, like right-wing accelerationists seem to think? Right. Well, I mean, here's another thing to really think about. I was talking to Doug Lane about this. He mentioned it to the kind of New Deal historian Harvey Kay. But Paul Matik pointed out that the S. Day's General Lasallian platform was picked up entirely by the Nazis, and the only difference was the Nazis actually got it through. Yeah, this is an argument he advances, and I think it's part of his argument in From Marx to Hitler, his hit piece on Karl right. Kinski. This is the stuff that makes me roll my eyes at fascism is the last bastion of capitalism or whatever, you know, kind of typical left narrative. Yeah, that's just wrong. I mean, no. It's not true, you know, specifically out of the petty bourgeoisie. I don't think, you know, that when Hitler had a bunch of corporatists in a boardroom and he was telling them, like, okay, you go along with this or you die, uh, that they were pleased with that compared to the free rule of the bourgeoisie. No, they weren't. That's why they were always supporting reactionary conservatives to try to overthrow Hitler. That's something that's missed. Another thing that's missed in all this is the South. What's interesting about this actually is both leftists and rightists have had an incentive to bury this element of Southern culture. Um, when I was a kid, for the your listeners who don't know me, hi, I'm Derek Farn. I'm a Southerner. I'm a recovering Southerner, born and raised in, in central Georgia in the 1980s. So uh, I remember the Klan, and I knew people who were Klan adjacent who had pictures of Roosevelt in their house, like FDR, all right? And when libertarians got to me, it was John Flynn, this uh, guy who was actually an isolationist and ended up working with a lot of people who were fascist adjacent too, but who argued that the, the New Deal was like fascist adjacent because its economics reminded him of certain things that had happened in the South and certain kinds of like integrated society pushes that were really about control. So growing up with that, I always had to deal with that element. And what was interesting is the left's own history is really mealy-mouthed on this. And when I say it's mealy-mouthed on this, I mean it's deliberately so. Because when you study, for example, third periodism in the United States, where they were like issues like white skin privilege and stuff come up out of the kind of Stalinist organizing in the South, and they were doing, like, God's work and anti-Jim Crow, anti-racist action. And then they deliberately suppressed that in the late 30s and 40s to be able to enter a pop front with the Democrats because the majority of the Democrats were still aligned to the Dixiecrats. And while the New Deal was bringing blacks into the coalition of the Democrats— Traditionally, between, say, 1850 and 1920, the party for blacks was the Republicans. And so, like, this history is something I knew, and it's something I even knew because, for example, the Democrats in the South, they would often change their party allegiance from D to R and back based on whatever the local executive was. And the majority of the state legislature was Dixiecrat Democrats until 2000, when the first Republican governor of Georgia was elected that late. And then they all changed from D to R and made some deals with the with the Georgia Black Congressional Congress to kind of solidify some black districts. So this history, like, is actually coherent 
with the history of the South that it exists, you know, until basically the 21st century. But between the Nixon Southern strategy, the attempt of neo-Confederates to make inroads with libertarians in the 80s and 90s, and also, frankly, leftist attempts to kind of write off Southern slavery as purely capitalistic has erased a lot of that history, even though, guys, some of this is recent. This is within my lifetime. It's put forth as like, you know, like, because, of course, on the left, everything bad has to have been capitalism and anything anti-capitalist was good. And so it's put forward, right, that slavery was this capitalist project when in reality, sure, some of the North benefited from it. But a lot of Southerners, and this is proof, really, a lot of Southerners saw themselves as creating, and this historically is one of the first inroads on the capitalist mode of production that tries to and fails to create an alternative based on slavery. Now, this is one of the places that it falls apart, too, because, one, a lot of these people have such sentimental ideas of slavery that they view antiquity, for example, production in ancient Rome, ancient Greece, etc., as having been centered on slavery, when in reality, I would call it less a slave mode of production, more a kinship mode of production, right? Obviously, you have slavery that benefits citizens, but that isn't actually how most of the work gets done. Well, depends on whether you're talking about Greece and Rome, actually. They're actually very different. The other thing that they ignore is that Southern slavery did use a whole lot of innovations from capitalism and from mechanization to make it actually more brutal. That's kind of unique because, like, the only slavery that's antique that was probably as lethal is mind slavery, which people knew was a death sentence. Right. I want to push back a little bit on the concept of capitalist slavery just sort of being what it becomes to Maoists and this sort of, like, reactionary bugaboo because Marx wrote about capitalist slavery and the context that we actually encountered Fitzhugh in, in an article by John Clegg, giving an asterisk to this concept of capitalist slavery. I think the distinction would be that, like, capitalist slavery is, like, historically unique in that we go from production of use values to production of exchange values writ large in, like, a formal subsumption relationship tied into capitalism, but not fully reconfigured. To push back on that a little bit, though, Marx explicitly said in his letter to Lincoln that the South was not a bourgeois form of society. Like, he explicitly said that. What I was really trying to get at before with the stuff about the fantasy of the right on antique mode of production was not that slavery wasn't important to, you know, Roman political economy or whatever, but more just saying that if you look at the way the Nazis, for example, think about slavery, they have this plan that, okay, we're going we're gonna to build a new slave mode of production, but really the whole thing can't sustain itself unless there's endless war and expansionist war. And that goes beyond the basis for a mode of production. If slavery was the basis of a mode of production, and this kind of applies to the states to an extent as well, if slavery was the primary basis of a mode of production, you wouldn't need constant expansion, right? The real drive was imperialism or proto-imperialism or whatever you want to call it. This is a, a point Samir Amin made in the uh, Eurocentrism, that slavery is less of itself like a mode of production and it's more like a relationship between societies, types of societies that have another form of labor at their center, 
like for the most part. Right. Well, I think the reason why Southern slavery throws us off for a loop is that it's a mixed form. And if you like look at like Janus Arias Banerjee, you know, he's like, whatever's the dominant form is how you categorize this. Good fucking luck on what figuring out what the dominant form of late you know, 17th century Southern society really was. Yeah. Well, as an agricultural society, it had more of a place for slavery, you know, especially in terms of its international political economy than something like Nazi Germany ever could have because Nazi Germany was post-industrial. The reason why, though, the Civil War happened was not slavery itself, but the fact that the South needed slavery to expand to survive. And they knew that. Like, Lincoln was willing to compromise with the South and allow them to keep slavery if it didn't grow. But they knew that they were not productive enough without the expansion. So that's the same paradox you see in antique societies. Antique societies also, as much as they were slave societies, and particularly in the case of Rome, like, I think something like 70% of all labor was done via slave networks. The, the difference there is that slavery was much more temporary. Um, it wasn't particularly efficient. But what made the empire grow was growth of the empire. It was not slavery. Like, they had to physically, continuously expand for raw resources. Otherwise, they would stagnate. Right, right. Yeah, and I'm sure the Nazis would have loved to enslave all of the Slavs, for example. And the Nazis did employ slavery on their concentration camp prisoners. But that alone is not a mode of production. No. Well, right. I I agree with that. Think about all the overseers. Those people were waged laborers. There's a whole class of white workers, essentially, that get roped into guard labor. Yeah, but there's wage labor in ancient Rome, too, so you're arguing that capitalism is transhistorical if you do that. I don't know if Lexi's arguing that capitalism is transhistorical, but... Definitely not. The point being that there is, like, a larger value form circuit going on with the American South that is linked to northern industry in a way that you just don't have an analog for in ancient Rome. There's no formal subsumption relationship. You're right, which is why it's such a weird society, right? It's hard to imagine. We have to look at the larger world context. There's only two societies where slavery was still profitable on a mass scale that late. That's the U.S. South and Brazil. Everywhere else, it stops around 1820. It's just not efficient enough to keep up with industrial production. And what makes southern slavery interesting, even more interesting than Brazil, although Brazilian death rates are actually higher than the South, it was weirdly mechanized, which is what I found interesting in this section of Fitzhugh that we read, is that he sees slavery as a way out of the mechanization problem, but slavery in the South was mechanized. Like, the cotton gin is super crucial to slavery being an effective way to export cotton like without that and without the ability of the congen to like run slaves into the ground the annual labor part of it just wasn't efficient and this sort of tension in the south has always been an issue i mean one of the things about the south is like it's always felt weird about industrialization because it even after reconstruction and even during reconstruction i, I know there's this tendency now to see reconstruction as a success only skewed by like bad faith actors in the south which they were i don't want to completely demean that but the other thing is like nobody even early on was interested in letting the south industrialize why well they were afraid that if they industrialized before that they had completely like deconfederated them that they would basically you know have the uh, a bounds 
for rebelling again and trying to succeed because they were essentially an occupied territory. I think they're underestimating what capitalist civil society would have done to the South, though. I don't know. It's hard to say because one of the things about the South is it's still the poorest part of the United States. And, like, for example, I like to point out where I grew up is not gentrified. It's a fucking decaying mess. And the economic uptick in the last 10 years hasn't helped it. That's a trend for a lot of the South for at least a century and a half. And the other trend was actually adopted from Scotland. And so after the Jacobite Wars in Scotland, what did the British military do to get Scotland on their side? Well, they literally put all the military bases there and recruited from Scotland heavier than they recruited from England into the military itself. Where are all the military bases in the United States? Where are the biggest ones? They're all in former Confederate territories. Why? And these are things that, like, the left doesn't even fucking notice about how it would deal with the South. Like, I will be honest with you. The reason why I wanted to talk about this is to talk about the left's inability to reach out to the South. And it's been an issue for a long time. One of the, I mean, going back to the SPA, the SPA couldn't figure out what stance it was going to take towards the Klan. One of the things that I got really uncomfortable with discovering, you know, how Portland historically is a, like, height of labor activism and is also explicitly, as in the entire state of Oregon, was a Klan outpost from people leaving the South and trying to start a Western colony. If you don't know that, that's just kind of a historical fact. Well, why did the socialists were so strong out there from early on? They went out there and they weren't even initially opposed to the Klan. They didn't know what stance to take because they didn't know how to feel about yellow card labor activism. And in the South, and particularly, there's never been a labor movement of any significant size outside of the churches. And the reason why that is, is because both internal and external actors, both northern and southern leaders, were able to use racial tensions between black and white workers to make sure that unionization was pretty much fucking possible. And so, like, this entire history has been lost, as also has been the South's ambivalence towards capitalism. I was mentioning off-air that uh, when I was a kid, libertarianism was just as kind of radical chic as socialism was. And in fact, like we would read like Chomsky and Lou Rockrell when I was in high school, um, as weird as that is, because both were kind of opposed to like the Southern, like, it was extremely racist even when I was a kid, but like there was this idea of a kind of socialism for the middle class so, for example, in Georgia, and it still exists, there was a lot of places who legalized gambling only in the sense of a lottery so that middle-class kids with B averages could go to college with most of their tuition forgiven, which is actually a weird way of taxing like the poor community for the middle-class community, but it leads to like land trust and college educational like quasi-social projects, which to libertarians look like socialism, but in the South were totally normalized. Let me go ahead and retract my statement about um, Marx talking about specifically capitalist slavery. He always qualifies it as slavery, you know, that develops in capitalist society or a pre-capitalist form. Right. He does something like what Benaji implies is that the dominant form in a society is what it is. You know, that defines it. Primary exploitation, you might say. Marx in that letter to Lincoln does explicitly say he's afraid of like pre-capitalist formations existing within capitalism, making it worse than it already is. There's a whole literature about whether something that's in capitalism is capitalist. Well, Banaji would say like it is capitalist, but this is a huge debate 
what I think it actually does do, and we have to be honest about this, it kind of makes a hash of, like, you know, vulgar Marxist, like, simple typologies, like primitive communism, then you have antique slave society, and then oriental despotism, then feudalism, then then capitalism, and then communism. And this, there's all these weird transitional forms. Banerjee goes through tons of them in his book, Theory is History, and they, they are very hard to categorize. It's more complicated, too, in that the North and South had different conceptions for mode production, not just in terms of slavery, but general international trade. You know, what, what is the relationship between nations, even? They had different conceptions of what the future would look like. The, the big debate that, that is unclear to me, and that is being rehashed right now, is if Southern society could have survived past when it did. A lot of Maoists and a lot of liberals think that it could have almost indefinitely. And I'm not so sure. My thoughts on Nazism is that it would have collapsed if they had won World War II. And so... You know, the, the South, likewise, it's ensconed in this mode of production that doesn't really suit it. Well, it's also, like, just from geographical historians, it's hard to imagine how, like, plantations would work in the Midwest or in the Southwest desert. I have a hard time trying to figure that out because, like, they tried to do that in Mexico and it worked for mining. But, like, when they tried to do it agriculturally to the indigenous people, it just literally killed so many indigenous that it wasn't profitable. Yeah, I mean, it seems like one of those things where it could have continued, but for decades, not centuries, you know? That, that's a good way of putting it, yeah. Yeah, like, I, th- I feel like if the Nazis had won World War II, I think they could have they could have kept it going for a while. Um, but, it w- like, long term, I don't, I don't think that was just really a feasible, you know, they actually would have bumped it to somebody else. Right. They had their whole fantasy that they were going to take over the world by declaring war on the East. I think within five years they would have had problems with the whole Game of Thrones thing that their internal politics was, mm-hmm. let alone taking over Asia. We couldn't, like, be at Vietnam, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I feel like they would have had a lot of problems with, you know, There, there would have been some trouble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. China has not been successfully conquered in a long time. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and and also, I mean, Hitler, like, you know, he had such a political view of how to take over a country. He tried to capture Stalin instead of trying to capture the oil fields. You know, Hitler's idea of how to win a war was like fucking Age of Empires 2 based, (laughs) more or less. The issue with the Confederacy is a little harder to understand because once they succeed from the Union, did they think that in succession they would be able to carry out a war of attrition in the territories and actually the, it, knowing what I know about Southern generals. And I, I just want to like pull my Southern cred here. Like I taught English in the building that's, that Georgia seceded from the union in. Wow. Just, you know, like literally I was tutoring underneath the state hall. I'm ensconced in this. And when I was a kid, like I, I heard about the war of Northern aggression and I felt like it was a, a step up when we started calling it the war between the states. That's the childhood I had. Let me just say, though, the fact that you just said ensconced, I realized that I have this habit of saying ensconced, which is like, you know, a pastry. <laughs> so thank you, for, thank you for reminding me, but go on. But the Southern General Lee, and Lee apologizes often pick on this, but Lee thought the Southern cause was actually doomed in the long run because they couldn't expand the, the enterprise. Um, and I, I don't want to make it sound like Lee was a good man. He was not. But his reason for being a general in the Confederacy was like this doomed heroic stance because they didn't think they could spread the Southern lifestyle much outside of the South. 
And another thing to kind of like put in perspective, the South had not always been con- consistently a slave society. Not only were there anti-slavers in the South, but there were also just like Georgia itself was originally founded as part of the Oglethorpe Pact. That might not be the right name for it, but Oglethorpe founded Savannah as an anti-slavery colony. And what happened is they couldn't maintain the uh, agricultural mode that they were trying to do without conscribed labor because basically free labor, the people would just die at such rates that it wasn't possible. Like they just lost so many prison colonists to, to the conditions of trying to do massive farming in a swamp that it was not a feasible model and they eventually made the concessions to slavery post facto after the initial Oglethorpe Corporation failed. And so, like, that's also part of their mindset on this is they literally thought that free labor as a breadbasket was not possible. And that was why so many Southerners supported it because, you know, only a tenth of the society owned slaves. Not getting a lot of feedback on that. No, Derek, I don't think I can push back on your southern experience. Who am I to challenge? Your, no, um, <laughs> wait, wait, listen, Lexi, we never challenge people's lived experience on this podcast. And, you know, the division between town and country means we, you know, have to respect uh, Derek's, um, you know, crypto neo confederate views. And, you know, we, <laughs> I think, I think at, you have to be careful with that shit. People actually have accused me of that. As a matter of anti-imperialism, you know, like we can't uh, allow the war of northern aggression to continue to project its imperialist influence over the the oppressed nation of the... I mean, okay. I kind of spaced a little bit looking into Clegg's argumentation for why slavery is capitalist. Well, what is his argumentation for, for why slavery is capitalist? He uses Robert Brenner's definition of market dependence as capitalism, essentially. Mm, okay. Yeah, I don't know, because I think the South, at least as a political project, was an attempt to overcome capitalism. And, you know, that's the thing, though is that most political projects to overcome capitalism, and this applies to Nazi Germany, the Soviet Union, the Confederate South, uh, East Germany, etc., find their social situation, you know, encapsulated in many ways by the world mode of production, regardless of their their political desire to get over it. Hey, uh, Lexi, do you know if uh, Brenner is a state capitalist theorist? Because I've actually wondered that in regards to this question specifically. That's a good question. Because the Soviet Union relied on market production. Like, during the NEP, it was internal, but during, like, the 60s and 70s, it was external. And by the 80s, it was literally like, we had three fucking rubles, and they were different, and, like... I actually don't (laughs) know if Brenner is. I somehow doubt it. I know that Emanuel Wallerstein who wrote with uh, Adam Perzwarski and who died recently. He's the sort of analytical Marxist thinker that kind of most fleshed out that theory that I actually associate with Tony Cliff, you know, is that, well, if it's in capitalism, then it's capitalist, no matter what's right, inside. Right, which is interesting, though, because, like, the rest of of Wallerstein's um, world systems theory is really hostile to, like, Cliffite analysis, <laughs> Interesting. I didn't realize that world systems theory was state capitalism adjacent. I asked this because, weirdly, I think your answer on the South is going to be partly, like, if you think the South is capitalist, I think you kind of have to think, because of market dependence, 
you also have to kind of think the CCP and the and the USSR are capitalist because of world market dependence. I think that totally holds. There's more stable forms of wage labor in the South. But wage labor and market dependence are not the same thing. It, Brenner's actually the person for this, uh, Brenner and Micah Woods, is they point out that like wage labor and markets and all that exist prior to capitalism. It is the way that those all intersect in a market dependence formation and allow for reinvestment that creates capitalism. I don't totally agree with their like English only like centric views on this. Brenner doesn't have a good theory of like hybrid forms. Like what do you do with the Italian city states are the mercantile form of the late Byzantine Empire are like weird capital mode of productions that appear in monasteries like in a blip in the ninth century. Like Brenner didn't have anything to say about that, but this all gets very quite weird. And I say this because like I don't have a good answer for this. If, but if you say the South is capitalist, you almost have to say the Soviet Union is too. I think the devil would simply be in the details when an entire society is in formal subsumption. Like I guess it's a matter of how you carve up the units. The other thing to ask if we believe in Tickton's like non-mode of production for the Soviet Union, would we also see something like that for the South? Because, and I only say this because like. Most of the South, even that wasn't slave plantation owner, was not wage-based. There were wage owners. Those are the free labor and slavery. You're right about that, like the the overseers and all that. But the majority of people were, were basically sharecroppers, and that's barely not a peasant. For the South, that was like 70% of the white population or something crazy like that. It was a lot. Fitzhugh, even though he conflates a bunch of shit under the name of slavery or socialism, makes a direct comparison to uh, Russian feudalism. Yeah. In a way that, like, I don't know, kind of begs the question and kind of assumes a lot. But it was definitely, like, a parallel that, yeah, I don't think Marx would have stood by in terms of uh, political economy. But in terms of a political phenomenon as being like a backwards anti-capitalist institution that was being routed into capitalism. That is a question is how much like late serf society, because it's another thing about like with the Italian city states, for example, mm-hmm. and just to bring this up. Sicily still have serfs until like almost the 20th century. So there are those who like argue that the Italian city states were the first capitalist society, but you have medieval institutions going on there until almost World War One. You know where else you see that? Russia. Mm-hmm. And our serfs, the same thing as slaves. When you read historians, they're kind of wishy-washy on this because it's not clear. Because they're not free labor. Right. They're also clearly not chattel slavery. Um, but chattel slavery isn't the only form of slavery. So... Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I hate to like be all semantic on this, but these things actually matter. No, no, no. These things matter, and a lot of the literature that we have about it is Althusserian, and unfortunately, that's a brainworm that seems to devour a lot of the utility of the literature. Part of the Althusserian uh, tradition that is interesting is to think about how, in real life, you don't get an abstract ideal, like a mode of production. You know, as if it, you know, fell out of the pages of Capital or, you know, something similarly tractable. You get something they call the social formation. And the social formation is this heterogeneous mix of different kinds of exploitation, different kinds of distribution, etc. Eventually, you can't really make generalizations about societies at all. Because, I don't know, there's too many historical conjunctures is the words that they end up using. Like that, that history plays too much of a role in building structures to really generalize. 
Right. Foucault takes that to the next step where you like can't talk about transitional societies or whatever because everything is so generously unique. Right. Right. Like, this this all comes out of this attempt to and honestly, I think like yeah, that part of the Althusserian tradition where they're like trying to do this, you know, before they kind of like lose their nerve, like that's the worthwhile part. And I rarely say things like that in public, so I cherish it. You said something nice about the Paris Strangler. Oh my god! Well, I said it's something nice about it, bastard kids. So. Oh well, you know, I guess even the Stranglers have children. <laughs> um, one of the things about this, to me, I mean, it makes it very hard to do these comparisons. But I actually do think these kind of liminal examples in the South is a good example of this because it it, it really does affect things. I have often been amiss that aside from Ingalls talking about America's weird yeoman hang-up because of its settler-colonial society and when it particularly came out of, you know, British society where there was still a yeoman class, Mm. and that's sort of its fetish. The only socialist writer who ever really talks about this in any meaningful sense is Ingalls, and then everybody just kind of forgets America's important. Mm. (laughs) For like a hundred years, until it like sneaks up on everyone in the 30s. Like, it's like, oh, yeah, we have to worry about Germany and, like, Hilferding and blah, blah, blah. And, like, America's just like, we're here. We have stuff. We stole all this from other people. But, you know, we're going to rebuild Europe with it. So suck it, Soviet Union. Like, and it really does seem like everybody was blindsided by it. Not Stalin by the 40s, but, like, in general, like, no one thought it was going to be important. You read, like socialist literature from you know the early 20th century and america and latin america just barely come up and that's a huge fucking mistake but i also think it means they haven't studied a lot of those like settler colonial societies with marxist lenses and a lot of the lenses that we've used since then are like weird hybrid lenses that are like not particularly coherent to be frank i actually personally don't know where i put this off i do think like modern capitalism is almost impossible to imagine without settler colonial slavery and not just southern settler colonial slavery. Like, you have to look at the history of Haiti and and uh, the islands and, and Latin America, which, you know, persisted in most of Latin America till the 1830s. It doesn't seem to work like capitalism did at all. Like, the reinvestments were wrong. There's not a whole lot of incentive until the 1840s, for example, to reinvest in labor-saving technology when you have slaves. Doesn't this remind you, Lexi, of like what Bakunin said about the peasants? The peasants were Bonapartist and like reactionaries because they hated capitalism so much. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. That they'd rather have the emperor than these bourgeois leaders. And like, oh god, this feels a little bit like that, <laughs> like, right? And then you know that reactionary anti-capitalism is supposed to be very useful for us. Yeah, that just doesn't pan out. I have a hard time with a lot of this stuff because I really have struggled my entire life with both the town and country problem in a very real way and also, like, really looking at how how badly the socialist movement did not understand the South. There's a ton of opinions about the South. There's not a lot of historical study. No. Other than by the descendants of Fitzhugh. And that's all become unpopular because it bought into, like, the neo-Confederate second KKK myths. People forget, for example, that the second Klan had a pretty huge following outside of the South as a kind of, like, keep the South as part of the coalition movement in the 20s and 30s. And that's also when, like, all those fucking Confederate monuments, like, liberals are good on this, that's when they all went up. It wasn't actually even in the 18th century. 
It wasn't in the 1800s. It was not immediately. It was in the 20s. It was a joint North-South effort to allow Confederate identity to be included in the U.S. identity. That's historically weirdly unique. <sighs> you, you don't think of, like, civil wars generally trying, leading to a collaborationist effort to keep one part of it in. And yes, we can blame Wilson, mm -hmm. who was a Southerner. But you, you look at the, like, the Northern Republican administrations in the same time period, even though they were largely seen as progressive. That's why they – weirdly, we, don't, we miss this now. But they supported the women's movement um, was tied into this, and that's what led to Prohibition, believe it or not. I mean you peeps would know that, but most people don't know that. Mm. But that they were also just as interested in like – keeping the South in and making inroads to the second clan. And the second clan was a different institution. In fact, it played down the anti-black narratives and played up the anti-foreign, anti-Catholic narratives. <laughs> and the terrorist clan, as we know, it's really the third clan. Yeah. Th so these are things that emerge later on. And honestly, most socialists don't know shit about this. And, like, liberal historians and, sadly, conservative, neo-Confederate, friendly historians actually are usually better scholars on this. But most people get into it as, like, how Appalachia and the Tidewater were very different because um, Appalachian's mining community was more union-sympathetic. But the same problems of using the black community to break that up happened in Appalachia, too. It just didn't happen as severely. Um, but that led to stuff like, you know, Matewan, which is made infamous by that movie, and a bunch of um, union slaughters. Um, and so what does this have to do with Fitchu is, like, one of the things the South has always had is this kind of quasi-anti-capitalist movement, and sometimes even an anti-racist movement. Um, so you think of William Jennings Bryant. So one of the things we forget... Um, William Jennings Bryant, like fundamentalist scope trial. You know what? He, you know why he? One of the reasons why he was afraid of evolution, right? He was afraid of social Darwinism, <laughs> reintroducing racism into the progressive movement in the South. Huh. Like that was one of his fears, because he didn't want this Fitzhugh stuff coming back. I think people should read this, and something I want to do with Swampside Chats is, you know, it's a show that can seem like inside baseball, but I think if people read the text along with us, I think that they will be inside the baseball with us a little more. And so I definitely want to, on our social media type stuff, I want to promote, you know, like, let's share this PDF, that kind of thing from now Does on. Does anyone have any fears that we're accidentally inventing a new reactionary tendency by talking about this? Oh, yeah. I mean, that was, that was my nightmare. But... That definitely crossed my mind a couple times when I was reading this. We're letting the right know that they have, like, <laughs> one smart person in history. No, I had a friend who called this the marks of slavery, you know? Oh, God. There is something dangerous about Fitzhugh in the sense that Fitzhugh is actually smart. He's also in a tradition that that kind of freaks me out. So you know the racialist Sam Francis wrote this book called Leviathan and His Enemies and the, didn't publish it, but he wrote it in the 80s and 90s. It got published by Reactionary Press about four years ago. And it's also like, it's eerie how on marks he is too. Like a lot of these uh, racialist thinkers actually feel like they know their Marx better than a lot of like the libertarians who are supposedly anti-Marxist, but were Marxist in college. 
do. And that, that does disturb me. Mm-hmm. Quite a bit. Yeah. No. I wouldn't want, like, say, uh, to get his hands on this. Our right, right. I mean, you know, regardless of whether these people are, like, entirely sincere, like, the meme value of these sorts of things... Dixie socialism or whatever. You know, if you're trying to jam circuits, that's pretty fucking weird. Yeah. Like. There's few things more marginal than the fucking left. But you know what's more marginal than the left? The far right. right. Fucking right. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's the fucking thing. Yeah. Is, you know, there's, there's few things more marginal than the fucking far left. But the far right. Yeah. Nobody wants that shit. You go, you go to Graftreon, you see the Patreon, you know, top 100 or whatever. You look at the top. What do you see? You see, you know, some shitty alt-right podcast? No. No. Patreon's never made a lot of money either. You know, most people don't love the left. But the right as a project that is like, we are going to make a bunch of effort to exclude people. Is, that's way too much. <laughs> Which makes the neo-Confederate, like, attempt to rebrand itself as libertarian in the 90s kind of interesting. Because the, the neo-Confederates are just as interested in, in hiding Fitchu and, like, the entire Southern tradition, honestly. Um, because one of the things they started doing was trying to convince libertarians, not just Ron Paul even, like, I think, like, Brown and some other people have said, like, well, the Articles of Confederation were more libertarian than the Constitution, ipso facto, the Southern Constitution, based on the Articles of Confederation, is more libertarian than the Constitution. So while slavery was super bad and condemns the Confederacy, maybe we can redeem something from, like, the Southern Constitution um, for liberty. Which, when you read Fitzhugh and stuff, you're like, that's real fucked up. Like, that's, yeah. that's been a sincere thing for a long time. I mean, like, this actually goes back to our Rothbard discussion, right? Like, th these neo-Confederates realize, well, maybe we can use the libertarians to break up the state <laughs> so we can take over. This angles at the ways that socialism 100% can be unequivocally reactionary. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. People who call themselves socialists can be 100% reactionary. And once you break that line, once you break that barrier, you have to question not just the fucking obviously right-wing people. You have to look at how is the left that I accept reactionary? That's the thing I think people should think about much more than they do today. Well, I'm super bummed out now. Everything is bad. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and uh... Now I'm going to feel like maybe people defending the gulags um, are also pro-slavery. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, what mode of production is the fucking gulag? You know what I mean? Like, if you want to do the, you know, let's divide up the social formation into modes of exploitation. Wh which one is the gulag? What is that? But this is the thing. You look at what Fitzhugh says, right? And you look at what the left says about the gulag. The left will go, you know, or at least the pro-gulag left will go, well, it was benevolent. It really helped people. They got an education. They got skills. They had a roof over their head. You know, they got health care. They had people looking out for them. You know, what more could you want, really? Those people were imperialist spies and thieves. Okay? It's completely right. different. And they needed a proper re-education, right? I love how we have Maoists who are like, Donald Trump has introduced 
concentration camps to the United States, never mind that they've been here since the 90s, never mind that Australia has had them for however long. But uh, yeah, no, um, there were some landlords in Mao's things, so that was all fine. I mean, those were landlords, though. I mean, like, <laughs> Wait, Jake. Like, you can choose to be a landlord. Like, you can't choose to be a Mexican, you know what I mean? Jake, you know I can deal with a few dead landlords. Because I can. If you don't know, <laughs> let me tell you now, I can deal with a few dead landlords. Yeah, That's that... fine to me. Well, I, But I, I do like not out... think that those concentration camps in fucking China were just landlords. I've been hearing a lot of Uyghur imprisonment apologists lately. Like, even on the anti-imperial left. That's one of the most craven and upsetting, like, turns of events, like, in and in a very craven and upsetting field with the mental <laughs> gymnastics of supporters of the Donga State. Like, yeah, because, yeah, I don't know. The one argument that, you know, I continue to think about is the way that Leninism and anti-imperialism in the Marxist tradition are, you know, tied together. And the one extant form of Leninism. How, how's that going? That's a gut punch. The one thing you can take away from this from a positive political structuring point is if you want to attack libertarians who defend the Confederacy, you just throw this at them. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, the Confederacy was socialist. (laughs) (laughs) It was the first reactionary form of socialism, okay? You know what actually this makes sense of? The old CP line, I think it's uh, Genovese, one of the uh, old CP historians, that talks about the Klan and that like element as the first form of fascism, as a proto-fascism. And if so, if, the, if slavery is a form of socialism and they're sort of hearkening back to that, then uh, there you go. I mean, I actually think there is a legitimate, like, not just a hot take, like, oh, the Nazi Germany based its policies off of Jim Crow, which, yes, they did, but uh, some of them. But there's a real truth to the fact that people don't study the Confederacy as the first attempt at a a socialist deviation, but it's not a Marxist deviation because Fitzhugh's a contemporary of Marx. He's responding to the same thinkers that Marx is. Which is weird. To see him talk about Fourier and, like, the, the rest of the utopians. Yeah, but Fourierism was super popular in America. When he talks about these, like, bastard forms of slavery that should really just get on with the slavery, he talks about socialism and communism and Mormonism. There was Mormonism in there. Well, Mormonism at this point was socialistic, yeah. which is, you know, weird to remember now. But, yeah, they still have this huge social welfare component that's, like, more extreme. Like, there's collective bread factories, like in Utah, for real. Like, I'm not joking. I used to live by Welfare Square. Like, there's like a whole complex. It's kind of crazy. But I know some reactionary socialists, like some uh, conservatives who are socialist friendly, who like have a boner for early Mormonism for that reason. <laughs> right. It's eerie, isn't it? I think the other thing that we have to, to chastise the left for, and maybe this is where I'm going to land on, we need to know American history better. We really mm. don't. Like, we know, like, the broad spectrum, like, post-68, like, arguments about Reconstruction or whatever, but we don't really know American history that well. Not the various movements and counter-movements and what people were claiming that lost. We don't really know that. I mean, shit, I didn't even know, like, the basic history of the area I came from. I ended up, like, moving back a little while ago. I I just, like, read a sign in, like, a park and learned that the British burned my hometown to the ground. And, like, it took them 40 years to, like, build another school or something. (laughs) Well, one of the weird things about the South is, like, the South is more obsessed with U.S. history than the rest of the country. 
Like, when I learned the Civil War when I was a kid, and they don't do this anymore, but, like, we literally spent two months in it, and I had to memorize every battle by both names, and, like, they didn't soften the Confederate atrocities either. So, like, we heard about all of it, but we also heard about the Northern atrocities, and when I would talk to, like, people educated in other parts of the country at the same time, like, they had no idea about most of it. Like, they didn't really understand Sherman, they didn't understand the march to the sea, they didn't understand Sherman's really pro-empowering blacks, but not because he believed that blacks were, like, worth saving, but only because he hated the Southerners for starting the war. Right. Like, because he also says horribly racist things, but... And, yeah, it goes with Sherman's kind of, like, colonial violence and slaughtering the indigenous people as well. He's also a big pro in the Indian War. And the Indian Wars are really not understood. We just don't know shit. We just don't know shit about ourselves. No, we don't. Like, American history is largely amnesiac. Partly because it's older for a modern country without a weird, like, bullshit ancient tradition like England has. It's actually very old. But we like to think of ourselves as young. But it's actually just because we have amnesia. And so U.S. history is actually in some ways far older than we, we give it credit for. It doesn't have an ethnic history that's very old because it isn't an ethnicity. But as a nation, as a nation state, it spans the course of modernity. Who else is like that? France? Even they've gone through, like, how many republics? They've gone through three empires and four republics or something? Like, yeah, we've gone through, like, two constitutions. Same is true with Mexico, too. Mexico's, like, an empire and, like, three different republics. So there's an America-shaped hole in the left consciousness in a world dominated by an American hegemon that really has no understanding of how it emerged. Which is really problematic, actually, to think about. And I know that, like, that's going to be a weird hot take, but my weird hot take is, like, we don't know American history that well. We don't know American class formation prior to the Marshall Plan that well. So we're, like, self-obsessed in the wrong way. Yeah. We're self-obsessed in an amnesiac way. We're obsessed with the now. Maybe our conception of history, like, the Civil War happened, and then, like, I don't know... The 30s happened, and FDR emerged as our Bonaparte, and uh, he was good and great, and then uh, the evil Republicans took over, and then Nixon fucked everything up with the Southern strategy, I think. I mean, like, even the history of the left in the 70s is largely forgotten. Unless you live around where it happened, in which case you don't hear about anything else. Yeah, but you don't hear about it either. Like, you hear about Stonewall, but you don't know the context for it. You hear about the Panthers, but you don't fucking know how Cleaver became a Nixonite. I'm sure Panthers know that, but you don't hear it talked about yeah. very much. Like, you would have thought that the world began and ended with Fred Hampton. And I'm not saying, like, all we need to do is study the history books. I don't believe that, but I don't think we know our own history very well. And, like, when it comes to the South and the West, that history is way weirder. Basically, most people assume the American history is the New England version. And that includes most people who aren't from New England. <laughs> Oof. And that should bug us, because, like, this Fitzhugh person's going to come out of nowhere. And, like, understanding... Like, the deunionization model attempted in Wisconsin and all that, that, you know, in some ways may have even led to Trump in a weird way. Like, that actually starts in the South in the, in the 19th century. That should throw us off, I think, in a very big way. Cue the end music. Cue the, what is it, crickets and frogs and shit? Yeah, 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 we've got swamp sound effects. Swamp sounds. Hold on, we, we haven't heard from Jake in a while. Uh, yeah, yeah, but I'm just... I'm, Starting to pass out. 
<laughs> just start passed out. Sorry, I, I'm <laughs> being all southern experty. We haven't really talked about the text much beyond like the general beginnings of it. Like, do you have anything to weigh in before we go? Um, I think slavery's bad. And this piece is dumb because, like, the extremely, like, rosy picture he paints of, like, slavery was, like, really kind of disturbing and just, like, I mean, okay, yeah, maybe it was more harmonious than is maybe, like, portrayed in, like, pop culture sometimes. Things like 12 Years a Slave or, you know, Django Unchained where, like, the person who runs it is just, like, a complete, like, basically psychopath. Like, maybe you did have, like, benevolent slave masters in some cases, but it was still a brutal system anyway, you know what I mean? Like Sociopathic bullshit can be very harmonious without being good. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we should just touch on that and just say, like, this guy is just, like, straight up, like, falsifying shit in many places, too. Like, I mean... Oh, yeah. I wouldn't want to call him, like, the marks of, like anything because like he's just straight up full of shit in some places and like some of his arguments are just like flat out stupid like yeah, actually a lot of his arguments are flat out stupid i i don't think he's that smart other than he's good at memes in 1850 yeah the problem is that if this person existed today he could troll the left and the left would get fucked i mean anyone <laughs> control the left i mean a guy made a movie about a batman villain and the people are losing their minds i mean it's not hard I'm just saying, just because, like, the market is shitty doesn't mean, like, slavery isn't shitty, too, you know? <laughs> yeah. He's full of shit about slavery. I think we can all agree on that, actually. Yeah, I feel like we should say that, like, just for the record. Exactly. This is wrong. Yeah. Because... it's good. good point. Uh, I mean, listen, I think fucking straight-up capitalism, stupid-ass wage labor... Give your boss way more value than you get paid for. That shit is more free than this bullshit. That's actually what this shit is trying to bury in capitalism. Well, no, no, he he says it. He says it's freer. He just he hates freedom. You want to talk about someone that hates freedom? <laughs> this is your guy. Yeah. You know, this man is like freedom bullshit. Who fucking needs it? You know, the way that people are deflationary of other humanist values, like, uh, you know, quality or justice. This guy is like, you know what? Fuck freedom. Freedom is stupid. Don't need it. Like, it's bad for you, kids. Don't bother. Well, about to hit the old dusty trail. Swampside Chats is part of the Emancipation Podcast Network and Research Collective. Check out our comrade podcasts at emancipation.network, where you'll find me regularly on the From Alpha to Omega reading series. If you'd like to enable our bong rip shenanigans in ways that cost zero dollars, show approval for our pages on social media, or leave a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice, Visit our homepage at swampside.chat for more. Without our generous patrons sustaining what we do here at Swampside Chats, we probably wouldn't be able to justify spending so much time on reading, shooting the shit, and editing said shit once it's shot. So if this glorious economic recovery has been kind to you and you like what we do, check out our Patreon at patreon.com swampsidechats where you can be the first to hear our episodes, chat with us, hear us record live, or even get a custom episode about whatever you want. 
Next time, we say goodbye to a real one. Not like one of ours, exactly. But all the same, he was one of a kind. Until then, you know the deal. Keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. <laughs>